The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a very special guest with us, Lynn McTaggart. Lynn is one of the preeminent spokespersons on consciousness, the new physics, and science of spirituality. She's an award-winning journalist and an author of multiple books that include The Field, The Intention Experiment, and her most recent book, The Bond, Connecting Through the Space Between Us. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's really wonderful to have you with us. You you have such a busy schedule. I feel very blessed that we actually get to talk to you. <laughs> it's really great. Great. No, so where are you today? I'm in London. Um, I'm just home in, in London where I live and uh, <clears throat> just looking after one of my daughters, actually. Ah, so... She's not feeling well today, huh? She's not feeling well. She's 14, but she's home from school. Ah, isn't it nice to be able to have a life where you have a little flexibility? You can do things like that. I have a lot of flexibility because we have our own business and uh, and because I'm also a writer. So I, I I think if I worked for me, I'd probably fire me. But uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> because of the fluidity of my life going in uh, and out. But I managed to get everything done, but in a very interesting, I suppose, in different way. Well, and I think that's going to be part of what we talk about today, you know, mm-hmm. um, the way you get things done in the world, and not only you specifically, but all of us, and how perhaps we can build more ease into our lives by the way we intention our lives. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious about um, this whole field of physics and the science of spirituality, consciousness, Something must have triggered you to move towards studying this. When did that happen and what was it? Well, it happened from my work with What Doctors Don't Tell You. I mean, most of my life has just been very much a, there's been no master plan other than wanting to write and be a journalist as well. Um, And I started out life as an investigative reporter and moved into writing about medicine and health because I got ill and couldn't find anybody to sort out what was wrong with me. And so I ended up researching what I thought I had and then researched the person I thought could could cure me, who was a nutritional pioneer in the U.K., and um, it was such an interesting and heady experience working as a partnership to get me well, rather than just being the dictated to by, you know, doctor-parent, um, that we started a newsletter called What Doctors Don't Tell You, 
And I was writing about medicine and looking at the medical literature every week, the scientific literature about what works and what doesn't work in medicine. And I kept coming across the occasional study of things like spiritual healing and um, or something in energy medicine or homeopathy. And I kept thinking to myself, if you can actually just have a thought, send it to somebody else and have them feel better, then that alone undermines everything we think about how our world works, how we work. So I was really curious about that. And I was also, I suppose, the hard-nosed investigator in me was put off by terms like subtle energy and energy medicine. You know, I kept wanting to say, well, where's the energy? Who's got it? Is it an energy field in the body? Is it an energy field outside the body? What's going on here? And so I... I persuaded my publishers to let me go on a journey, and I didn't really have a compass. I didn't know what I was looking for. I just went and spoke to a lot of frontier physicists um, who individually each gave me a little piece of what I soon recognized was a revolution in science, in the way we think. And yet, each of them, you know, first of all, scientists speak in code. They speak in math. But also, they don't like to venture beyond their own little experimental discoveries. They're taught not to speculate. And so I soon also realized that if I was going to come up with a new theory, I was going to have to put it together myself. So all of this was really fascinating to me, but very difficult. And it was I I just approached it like a journalist. Um, you know, investigative reporters are, are taught to be exhaustive in research, you know, to interview people 15 or 20 times each. And that's what I did. And I got them really to tutor me in a lot of it, and I studied a lot of the scientific literature and produced the field. But it just kept that subject really and that book changed my life because it changed completely the way I look at the world and the way I think the world ought to operate. Well, so what you're saying then is is we as human beings and as spiritual beings have a lot more control, I, I guess it's control, um, and influence in what happens to us or what we let happen in our lives. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. I mean, I think that there's a number of things. Um, you know, I mean, there's an element of there's an element of a larger plan here, of course. You know, the wonderful adage: if you want to make God laugh, tell him your future plans. Um, but there is this element of intention and thoughts. Um, and one of the problems is that we, as human beings, are largely unconscious of what we're doing and what we're thinking. And one thing I discovered, and this really became my next book on the subject, The Intention Experiment, is that a thought is not only a thing, but a thought is a thing that affects other things. And I started looking at the literature and the, and the science of intention and found that there's just a vast body of data showing that we have the ability with our thoughts to affect everything from single cells, you know, creatures to events and full and human beings. And so, again, the journalist to me wanted to find out, well, how much we can affect the world. 
And so with that book, I also have an ongoing experiment where I invite readers all over the world. And my books are in 27 languages, so I've got lots of readers. And I invite them on to our website to send intention to a particular target. Just two weeks right. ago, we, we with 9-11, we ran an eight-day mm-hmm. peace intention experiment where people, it's in 75 countries around the globe and as many people in Arab nations as in Western nations came together, thousands of them, and sent intention to Afghanistan for lowering um, violence. So we're going to be monitoring with a team of scientists mm-hmm. what happened there over time and see and monitor it and see wh- whether or not it deviates from the, what it was doing. So um, we run these things all the time to see how far our thoughts can take us, but there's no doubt that intention and our intention affects our own life and affects the world. So if intention can affect for good, it can also affect on the negative, right? Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the other elements in my book. I have a whole chapter on negative intention. And, you know, a Qigong master learns to have, you know, healing mind and destroying mind. And they found in studies of Qigong masters, they're just as powerful when they're trying to stunt a plant's growth or push an opponent back energetically as they are in doing something positive. So, you know, there's there's no distinction between it. And one of the problems we have is what we don't realize is, you know, we think of intention as like a power thought that we have in the morning. You know, we put together our power thought. We send that to the universe. And that's the only thing the universe hears. But, you know, we are sending out, and scientists have found this, a bunch of scientists realize this now and have demonstrated it in studies, that all living things send out a little current of light just a tiny, almost Morse code of light emissions, just tiny light. And other living things, in a sense, hear that and send back synchronicitous light back. So there's like this conversation going on all the time. Well, it may well be that thoughts, it looks like thoughts are just another kind of light emission. And so everything we think is also being broadcast So, you know, it's not just the power of thoughts that get out there into the world, but every, you know, bit of negative thinking, all the flotsam and jetsam, every every last mendacious thought we have, that too the universe hears. And collectively that ends up becoming our life's intention. Well, now that's interesting. So it makes me wonder um, if, you know, when times when people get into these... um, what I call obsessive thinking, where um, they only think about what could go wrong or how bad something is, and they can't seem to pull themselves out of it. Is it possible that another person is affecting their thought process? Are they having a voodoo effect, you mean? Oh, there you go. (laughs) You know, there has been a vast literature about that, and there certainly could be that. There could be that. Um, You know, usually people don't, you know, who are sending negative intention aren't as focused as 
uh-huh. really needs to be to be very effective with intention. Oh. I mean, that's one thing that they've found is the more focused you are, you know, intention takes practice to do right. well. And it takes, that's why I've put in the intention experiment a powering up program. That's a program um, that I, dis, I created by distilling the common practices of different kinds of intention masters, mm-hmm. like master healers, Qigong masters, um, Buddhist monks, and just took their common their common techniques and put them into a simple program everybody can follow that I call powering up. And the reason it's powering up is because it's, you know, it's about highly focused and energized mind state. And so that seems to be the way that people can send intention most effectively. Um, And I think, as I say, most people who are having negative thoughts about other people are just having these kind of just, free-floating thoughts, not a really focused and intense intention. So it could happen, um, what you're asking, but, it, it, you know, in the main it doesn't. Right. In the main we sabotage ourselves more than anybody right. else. Right, right. Well, and so talk about that. You know, I, I sometimes in working with clients, um, if they are in a specific situation that is highly stressful or there's a lot of um, high stakes, Um, sometimes I see this going on with them where they get into this what if, you know, kind of the doomsday thinking. And so, you know, we have different ways of helping them to stay out of that mire. And yet when I see it, I think, gee, isn't it interesting how easy it is for people to go there? So... Mm -hmm. Give us an example of, you know, what you would tell somebody in that situation to to pull themselves out of that. Well, first of all, I would tell them to start monitoring what they're thinking all day long Um, because, as I say, you know, we're all leaky buckets. We're sending out intention all the time. The universe is hearing it. And most of what they're sending themselves is negative self-talk, which is, you know, look how you muffed it. You know, uh, of course you're going to fail. I look too fat in that dress. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the negative, negative, negative that comes through all the time. And so... Um, that is first first becoming conscious of that negative thinking, and then um, moving into um, positive thinking, you know, starting to send out more positive information, sending out what you really want to have happen, and being very specific. You know, most people aren't very specific. That's one of the big problems people have, too, besides negative thinking. They, you know, they say to the universe, I'd like to be rich. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a typical one. I'd like Mm -hmm. to be rich. Mm -hmm. They actually don't want to necessarily be rich in the sense of having lots of stuff and having all the responsibility that having lots of stuff requires. What they really want is more time, you know, a new job, a more interesting and rewarding job, time to explore their hobbies, time to spend more time with their children or grandchildren. They want something else, but they think that riches are the way to get that. So it really is important to be very specific. You know, what are you really trying to to achieve and send send that out? And, you know, in our studies, we actually do things like send intention. For instance, we had an intention to make plants grow faster. We wanted to see if we could make food more plentiful. And we sent an intention to certain seeds that were targeted to grow at least three centimeters by the fourth day of growing, you know, that kind of specifics. Right. So this is what we encourage people to do all the time, be specific. 
Well, that's fascinating. And, uh, you know, it makes me also think about how um, sometimes people aren't clear about what they want. Not only are they not specific in their thinking, but they, even if they knew they needed to be specific, they wouldn't know what to say. And yeah, yes. I, wonder, I, I wonder about that. How do you help well, I think that? that I think one of the first things you've just nailed it, Cheryl. I mean, most, one of the first things that people really have to be is clear about what it is they want. Mm-hmm. So first, the thing is to decide what is it that you'd really like to have happen in your life. And oftentimes, people say a negative. You know, I want to not have this job. I want to not be with this person. I want to, you know, on and on and on, not, not, not. But. The real question is, what do you want for yourself? And if you don't necessarily know, you can take it in baby steps, you know, and you can take, you can start looking at what were you good at as a child. Well, I mean, I'm sure this is more your territory. You know, what um, what lights your fire? What is, as one of the people I like, John Diamond, who is um, he was really the father of behavioral kinesiology well before other people have used it now. And um, he used to say that there was such a thing called the homing thought. And by that he meant the thing that you are, the thing that you do that puts you in touch with the divine and makes you lose track of time. And that could be being president of the United States. It could be you know, being a great gardener, it could be being a great writer, being a great advertising person, or it could be just making the perfect chocolate cake. You know, it's whatever puts you in touch with the divine where you absolutely feel in the zone, connected. And he says when you hold that thought, that's the most powerful antidote to any kind of negative thinking or negative negative approach by anybody else. So I think... The place to start is really, what is your homing thought? What is the thing that you were put on this earth to do? Well, and you talk about that in the book, The Bond, in perspective with the issue of connectedness. And so not only being connected to what you want, but being connected to other people and the power of that. And we're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, I want us to get into that whole concept of cooperation and connectedness. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. 
Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccianello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our special guest today is Lynn McTaggart, who is the author of The Bond, Connecting Through the Space Between Us. Lynn, we, we had a great first segment, and you were sharing with us the power of intention and the thought connection. And I want to talk now about the whole concept of connecting, because in the book, The Bond, you speak about the power of cooperation and connection to others. So it's not only being connected to our thoughts, but being connected to others. Talk about that. Well, one of the things that I was interested in, and I have become interested in since doing my the field, my first, uh, first foray into this, my fourth book, um, was looking at the whole idea of what we take to be our scientific story. Because, you know, lots of things write the story we live by. But the most pervasive, particularly for modern society, is science. Science really writes the story of who we are, and from there we work out how we're supposed to live. And the main scientific story we've lived by says that the universe is populated by individual things, you know, and we've got that thanks to the scientific revolution, particularly Isaac Newton, and that these, these things are self-contained, and thanks to the work of Charles Darwin, we've kind of adopted a sense that there's just not a lot, enough to go around. And so life has to proceed and evolve through struggle. And that's pretty much been our idea of, you know, in the world, is competition has got to be the central engine of everything. And it is now. It's the central engine of um, our educational model, of our financial model, of our business model. In our relationships, they're very adversarial and in the main. You know, what's in it for me? Mine is bigger than yours. And even in our neighborhoods, you know, God forbid, your neighbor gets a Mercedes when you're just driving a Volvo. So, you know, it's competition has just permeated every aspect of our lives. And in and our languaging, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's a zero-sum game. And we believe that it's necessary for someone else to lose in order for us to win. And so I wanted to look at this because I just asked myself a basic question, and it was such an important question to me. It kept reverberating inside my head as though it had been surgically implanted there. You know, were we supposed to be like this? Is this what nature designed us to be? You know, where we meant to be, you know, life is all about being selfish and we do the best right. for everybody by being selfish. Or did nature design us in another way? 
And what I discovered, and this time I not only researched physics, but also biology, psychology, sociology, anthropology, all the ologies, and the resounding answer from the cutting-edge research in all these areas was no, we weren't meant to be like this. We were meant to be to care, share, and be fair. We were meant to be connected. And in fact, in every aspect of our lives, from our subatomic particles to our biology and its environment, to our social groups and the all the people we come into contact with, even those people we can't stand, there is a bond. And by bond, I mean a connection so profound and integral that it's impossible to say where one thing ends and another thing begins. Well, so what about the concept, though, of only the strong survive? I mean, we've seen evidence of that you know, through evolution, right? And so are you saying that the whole concept of care, share, and be fair supports only the strong survive? I don't think that, I mean, I think you have to define what you mean by strong. And, you know, I don't think that, I mean, Darwin had an idea that life was about a little competitive impulse of, you know, survival of the fittest. Right. And he really believed that's how evolution worked. Well, there's new evidence showing that that isn't the way evolution necessarily works. And even by the end of his life, Darwin did kind of repudiated a number of things. He actually never came up with the term survival of the fittest. That was one of oh. his friends um, oh. who came up with this. Because um, Darwin was very influenced by population explosion theories of the time and believed that there truly wasn't going to be enough to go around. And so life must proceed through struggle. Toward the end of his life, he began to reframe that and to say, no, life proceeds through cooperation. And there's new studies demonstrating that things mutate, things survive, because they're able to Certainly there is some aspect of fitness with the environment, but we also see that the environment changes organisms. I mean, there's been, I'll give you an example, story of bacteria. Um, the bacteria, uh, one, a scientist called John Cairns, well-known scientist, put some bacteria in a tight spot. He put it in lactose when this was bacteria that can't um, process lactose. So they were in a medium of, of, of lactose, and this should have meant that the bacteria could not reproduce and would just end up dying. That's not what happened. Bacteria started furiously hypermutating the gene just that could not process lactose until a mutation occurred that could process lactose, at which point the bacteria snipped out the old one and stuck in the new one. Now, this completely rocked the scientific community because they realized what was really going on here, that, you know, an organism isn't necessarily a blueprint from its DNA outward. It doesn't get created inside out. It actually gets created outside in. The environment changes genes, changes the expression of genes. So this has been demonstrated over and over and over again in studies that are about what they call epigenetics. And they now find that genetics, genes, are basically like the keys of a piano. They get played or not via environmental influences. So one of our basic assumptions that, you know, that strength and fitness 
um, equals survival has to be really recast as something very different because what I'm really talking about is a bond between an organism and its environment. And so that really, more than any inherent strength, creates survival. But also, when you really look at animal evolution, animal and human evolution, there's so many different holes in the idea of survival of the fittest. It's really survival of the most, survival of the most cooperative, survival of the fairest more than anything else. Well, so that makes me think about what's happening um, around the world in politics and um, specifically what's happening in the United States in politics these days. There is anything but cooperation going on. And um, in the survival of the government of the U.S., the survival of um, the society of the U.S. as it's currently structured, um, the survival of the financial models um, in the U.S. are all um, being questioned. Is that going to happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're now seeing, I mean, we're seeing it in individual businesses. It's very interesting to look at a, a business like Microsoft, you know, I interviewed Jack Canfield recently, and he was telling me that when you go to Microsoft, you find they still create a business model where they've got little groups, little silos yes. of highly competitive groups that are right. supposed to compete against each other in order to create innovation. And they have found that that is not as innovative as other organizations that create a community of innovation. So they encourage everybody to work together in the whole um, in the whole organization, and everybody, rather than individuals, benefits. And so creating that model removes the fear from the situation, and what it does, in my view, is it works completely towards who we've been hardwired to be, because there's so much hardwiring that, that I discover and I talk about in the bond that is all about cooperation. We've been right. hard, hardwired to feel as good about giving selflessly as eating or having sex. We've been hardwired to, to exquisitely feel and gauge what is fair and what is not fair. And we, we have an it's not fair button that goes off when we take too much or we're given too little. And the same thing, if somebody else takes too much or is given too little, we've got an it's not fair button that, that rings. You know, alarm bells go off. Right. So we, you know, we've been designed to, um, to constantly connect. We've designed to, nature has designed us with a, a will to wholeness. And the really important issue the really important issue is to understand that what's happening in America and around the world right now is the end point of the selfish and competitive mindset. This is what selfish looks like. It looks like everything falling apart because no one's working together. You know, it looks like, no, you know, bad schools, no parks, right. you know, businesses that are crumbling down, et cetera, et cetera, environment that is getting messed up because businesses are only in it for profits. And, you know, that's what it looks like. So the model has to drastically change. But the great news is it doesn't take, you know, we don't have to adopt communism. We don't have to abandon capitalism. We just have to reframe the, our business model to something that is much more cooperative. And everybody then wins. Everybody thrives. 
Well, let's talk about that. You you talk in the book about a couple of things um, before we get to changing the model overall, a couple of things that I think lead up to that. And one is very specific to an individual um, about a simple daily practice. And the second one is about a new way of speaking and listening. Can you speak to us about those two things? Yeah. I mean, I looked at what I felt really had to change because what I'm really talking about is wiping the hard drive mm-hmm. of who we think we are. Because we've been so imbued with the idea of our own individualism and competitiveness, that governs the way we see the world, and it governs how we interact with people. And I felt there were four really important things to do. The first thing is to see much more holistically. And by that I mean being able to see much more of the connection between things. Because, you know, we in the West have been taught to look so much for what's in it for me and also to look for the individual thing that we miss connections. And by doing so, we, by missing these important connections, we don't understand the whole. And we also can't see beyond our own vantage point. And that is disaster, as you can see with politics at the moment. You know, right. it's so polarized because the Republicans and Democrats cannot see beyond their own little mindset. Even though, and this is the fascinating thing, I found a study recently that looked at how Republicans and Democrats, when asked, would design ideal wealth um, distribution in the U.S. And here's the interesting thing. Both people from you know, either political party, no matter what part of the spectrum they were on, came up with virtually identical models for the perfect kind of wealth distribution. Really? And guess what? It didn't look anything like America. It looked like Sweden. Oh, wow. <laughs> it Interesting. looked like Sweden. People have an inherent sense of what's fair and what isn't fair mm-hmm. and what, what is good and what is you know, what's going to work. But we've got so polarized, we've got so polarized from the, you know, the viewpoint being the only way to look at things as though that's the only truth there is, that we can't see anybody else's truth. We can't understand that in any situation there are multiple levels of reality and that they all have to be looked at for us to proceed. So one of the things is learning how to be, take that aerial perspective, as I call it. And so I have in my book, The Bond, some really important programs and suggestions for how to do that. And I have, and I'm also, you know, providing that. We are providing some techniques where people can learn how to do that in their lives and learn how to see more. I mean, I'll give you a little example of this. Mm-hmm. We can't see very well because we're taught from the time we're little to just look at the individual thing. Think about the kind of um, books we read. We read things like Fun with Dick and Jane, and the, at least I did. And the book is always about an individual getting up to something. And we're, right. we're, we're taught to focus on that individual. Well, for instance, the Japanese don't read like that. They get their primer goes something like this. Little brother is sitting with big brother. Little brother loves big brother. Big brother looks after little brother. The first thing they're taught about is a relationship, not an individual thing. And so consequently, they found in loads of studies that Easterners and Westerners see very differently. 
Japanese people see much more the interrelationship between things right. than we do. And so that kind of that perspective gives you the ability to see multiple points of view and to come up with creative ways where you can work together that aren't just common ground. We're not just talking about, oh, what do we have all have in common? But what synergistically can we put together that's something completely new? Uh, and I'm very interested to know how you get somebody to see differently when they've spent their entire life um, trying to be separate, trying to stand out, trying to um, beat the competition, trying to move up the ladder, um, and in order to do that, somebody else has to stay behind. Um, and so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about that. Okay, great. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio, dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and today we're speaking with Lynn McTaggart. So, Lynn, um, I, I just love this in the way you have framed the whole concept of needing to look at things differently, needing to um, show up in a different way in the world, you know, that we really need to step back from the whole idea of being separate from, of only competing, of having to win, which means somebody else has to lose. So, you know, I think people are caught up in this a lot these days um, as all of our societies support the action of separateness and competition, etc. And you say that there is a way to train our brain to become more empathetic toward others. What's an example of that? After having a lifetime of being, you know, taught, think of yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is simple, simple things like compassionate meditation can help you be sensitized to other people. 
And that is just a, it's an old Buddhist meditation that sends you, you send out, um, I, you know, I appreciate the, uh, and love the, um, the kindness of all living things. May they be well. You know, when you have this kind of, this kind of idea that you send out to the world and you start with your dear friends, you start, then you go to your acquaintances, then you go to, you know, the people that you just work with, your colleagues, and then finally you send it to your enemies. And they found after, in scientific studies, when you do something like that, that even in a few weeks you become, as I say, much more sensitized to other people and their suffering. But there's other ways to learn to just relate to other people and to make that connection. And the most important thing is just a slight shift of emphasis. And we can learn from the work of Orlin Bishop, who is on a real fool's errand. He's working in Watts, California, you know, which was the scene of two racial riots, some of the worst in our, in our country's history. And he's teaching rival gang members how to relate to each other in wholeness. And here's what he tells them. First of all, he tells them to change their perspective on what a relationship's all about. It's not about winning. It's not about being first or elbowing out the other guy or indeed demonstrating that yours is bigger than theirs. It's about sharing, sharing deeply and from the heart. So what he's talking about are essentially the rules of dialogue as created by David Bohm the Uh British physicist, he was tired of the way people talk to each other and the way people relate to each other as though their way is the only way. And so he came up with these rules of dialogue, and they are just as follows. First of all, and most important, is to remove the idea and need to uh, have a debate or come to a decision. It is simply about relating And with that, the most important thing is to share deeply and from the heart. And then the next thing is to listen deeply and from the heart and to suspend judgment. And when you try that, it has a powerful, powerful reach because when you have that kind of deep sharing, it's like, as he put it, a new kind of mind comes into being. You know, you and the other person become a new mind together, and a new shared meaning comes into being. I'll give you an example of it. Among people who were the most polarized in America, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a few years ago, there were some shootings at a Planned Parenthood clinic. At the time, both the pro-life and the pro-choice people, the heads of, of both in the area, decided it was imperative that they start getting together. But they decided to adopt the rules of dialogue, of Bohmian dialogue, to see what would happen. And they met in secret for a few years. And over that time, they learned not to demonize the other, not to even label the other in any way, but simply to share deeply why they believed what they believed interesting things started to happen. When there were more threats on Planned Parenthood, it was the pro-life people who, who, uh, who um, tipped off the pro-choice people this was going on. And it was both groups who began working together and, and deciding on areas that they could work together on that were creative and new, like on teenage pregnancy. At the end of a few years of meeting in secret, Uh, They called a press conference. A journalist stood up and said, okay, so who won the debate? And they both said, no one. 
we both have become, both sides have become much more entrenched in what we believe in because we've shared it so deeply. And so the reporter said, aha, so it's been a failure then. And they then, both sides replied, oh, no, because now we go out together, we party together, we watch each other's children, we love each other. And there's an example of the power of deep sharing. Uh It just begins to remove any of those differences because what happens is you reveal the essential bond, the thing that ties us all together. Well, and so with as that is an example, those people said to one another, it's okay for us to have different perspectives. I still believe in you as a person. I still value you as a human being on the planet. Mm. And more than that, they became dear friends. Mm. Now, when you become dear friends, and, and even when you're sharing deeply, it's very, as we all know from, from spiritual work, you become very close to people very, very quickly. So imagine if you did share rather than compete. What would happen? What are the transformative things that would happen in business? Because in business, it's all about people staying guarded. Because, you know, the other guy, if he knows anything about you, it might expose a weakness. And that's the way we proceed. But suppose we didn't. Suppose we said, okay, we're going to share deeply about how we feel about these things, whether we're fearful, whether we don't think we can do it, or whatever. With that kind of sharing, invariably the human spirit steps up to the plate and starts connecting. It's just a remarkable situation. You see it even in cases of big divides when they use that kind of deep sharing during healing dialogues. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of a case of a, um, in a healing dialogue of a former um, Nazi, a member of the um, Hitler Youth Movement, um, and the daughter of a survivor of the Holocaust. And they met together and they shared deeply and they were allowed to talk very candidly. And she asked him, you know, what was your role in the Holocaust? And he said, well, I, you know, I beat up a few Jews, but, you know, I, hey, I was only 16. And she was really, you know, that wasn't satisfactory for her. So right. she asked very pointedly, so if you'd been 10 years older, would you have, you know, sent my relatives to the gas chamber? And he said, you know, for a moment he had to really think, and he said, you know, I just don't know. And that was really revelatory to him because he suddenly looked into his own soul and said to himself, I could have been a mass murderer. And he was shocked and horrified by his own admission and also despairing. You know, he said to her, you know, I'm in the dungeon of history. I'll always, I was only a child when this happened, but I'll always be a Nazi. I'll always be associated with this. And she said, you know, it was she who reached out to him then and said, you know, basically, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. She put her hand out and held it. And basically she was saying, you know, it's over now. We're together. We're connected now. We're human beings, and we are, we are moving past this. And that's the power of this deep sharing, even if you are the wronged, the, the wrongdoer. The power is such with deep sharing that the, it, re, it brings out, it reaches into the heart of the other and brings out a connection. And I guess my point is this should be introduced in politics, this should be introduced in business, because it's, it 
it creates a synergy, a trust, and a moving forward that just accelerates the company. Well, you know, and it's so evident um, that the power of connection exists and that people want to be connected because one of the um, one of the architectures of connection these days is the internet and mm-hmm. things like Facebook. And yet, um, I really wonder about the purity of the connection there, how real the connection is in something like that. What is your thinking mm-hmm. about that? You feel how, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand what you're asking. Well, you know, it, it's people say they want to be part of Facebook because they want to be connected to all these people, and mm-hmm. all these other people. And there has been this um, element of, if you don't have a Facebook account or if you don't have X hundred number of friends or if somebody, whatever it's called, unfriends you, um, then, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a disaster. And, um, you know, I, I just wonder because I, it feels to me like the connections are not very deep and it feels like the connections are not um, very, what I would call, pure um, they seem very surface-oriented. And, you know, you may be able to be a voyeur into someone's life and others may be able to be a voyeur into your life. Mm-hmm. And is there really that deep connection that you're describing? Well, yeah, because I saw it, um, you know, the Internet can be used as an amazing, an amazing um, technique for and tool for change. I mean, we certainly have seen it with the Arab Spring. That might not have been possible without the Internet and Facebook. But also I saw it two weeks ago with my peace intention experiment for uh, eight days, starting with 9-11. I ran an international peace intention experiment, and I had thousands, tens of thousands of people from um, 75 countries around the globe participating, uh, including, and about half of them were from the Arab nations. I worked with a guy who was basically the Deepak Chopra of the Middle East, and we we both encouraged people in our communities and other communities to join in, and we all sent intention to for peace in Afghanistan. Now, we don't have the evidence yet, you know, we have, we have, we're still doing the number crunching and everything, and we'll be doing that for several months to find out whether we had an effect um, over those eight days. But more importantly, we already had one amazing effect. People are friending each other from the Arab nations and the West for, as a result of this intention experiment. Many of them are connecting with each other. They're wanting to know each other. They're wanting to. I'm getting a lot of notes from Western people saying, What's there, "What are good books to read about Islam and the Arabs?" and um, and the whole thing we did during it was we began the intention experiment by um, Salah al-Rashid, who is the Deepak of the Middle East, began with an apology to the West for 9-11 and saying, you know, it wasn't us who did it, but it was all of us because we didn't do our job. We weren't, we weren't watching these people. We weren't stopping this from happening. And I responded with an apology from the West um, for our response to 9-11 because it has resulted in the death, injury, displacement, and, de- and, and detaining of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians in, in Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, has unleashed all sorts of other aspects. So, 
as well as I also apologized for historic, from the West, for historic exploitation of Arab countries. That had a remarkable effect on both sides. I mean, we were just we were just inundated with people wanting to connect. So I think it's that power of that deep sharing once again that even over the internet makes for connection. So I think yes, the Facebook and all of those things can be used in a very superficial way, but we also use Facebook in order to do this experiment in a way, and we use the Internet for the experiment, and it became a powerful connector from people all around the world. Well, and that gets back to the whole concept of intention and what is your intention behind it. And it sounds like um, what you're saying is if you have very clear intention with how to utilize things like this technology, um, that you can have huge impact with the whole concept of cooperation, with the whole concept of um, treating people fairly, listening, connecting um, with heart. Um, And it sounds to me like what you're saying is um, don't step back from the technology, step toward it and, and really make it something powerful. Absolutely, and it's a brilliant way for, for instance, companies to learn how to work together rather than to compete. You know, more and more of the forward-thinking companies are realizing that connection in the space between companies, even so-called rival companies, um, it turns out to be two plus two don't equal four, they equal 11. You know, when you start start working with other companies and sharing with them and working back and forth like that in an open, in a spirit of openness and connection, everybody wins. And, you know, this is what we see now with, with lack of fairness. You know, in the U.S., we're at our most unfair in history. And by unfair, I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, inappropriate, um, remuneration for effort or not uh, remuneration for hard effort or not equal opportunity. So I'm not talking about across-the-board sameness, but just fairness. And um, and what they found in scientific studies is that with any society in the West, the more unfair any country in those in those areas, the more everybody loses, rich and poor, in all the big social indicators like health, education, crime and violence, mm-hmm. mental health. And America is the richest country mm-hmm. um, in the West, but it's also the most unfair of all of the countries, and it has the worst social indicators of all. So one of the things that's really important to be reestablished in business as well as everywhere in society is a sense of fairness, bringing that quality back into what we do because it's hardwired within us. And when things are not fair, everybody loses. Right. Well, Lynn, this has been a fabulous conversation today, and we could keep talking going on and on, but we've come to the end of the show. And uh, I want to—I know people are going to want to know more about you and where they can um, find out more about the work you're doing. Where would you send them? Okay. Well, my mothership website is lynnmctaggart.com, which has all of my doings on it. Um, I also, for my new book, thebond.net, www.thebond.net, has the new fairness principles that people can just download and they can get a free sample from my new book, The Bond. Um, And it also says where they can get the book there. And if they want to take part in the intention experiment, they can go to theintentionexperiment.com. 
fantastic. Lynn McTaggart, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, as always, to connect with you, Cheryl. And remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.